HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today, having a Taco Tuesday. We are. <laughs> With Alex Stupak. Where did Taco Tuesday actually start? It was like a Taco Bell thing? I have no friggin' clue. I'm sure it came from marketing. Yeah. Um, you know, like Valentine's Day and all this other stuff. It, hey, I'm not complaining. No. I'm, I'm all for Taco Tuesday. Your Taco Nights weren't, weren't necessarily of that ilk, weren't the Taco Bell. They, they were El Paso from a box. Right. Yes. Um, where I grew up in Lemonster, Massachusetts, we didn't have a Taco Bell at the time. Um, I think we have one now, along with a Walmart, so it's come a long way. <laughs> um, but yeah, Taco Night, which didn't happen every Tuesday, but it happened at a pretty good clip, was the, um, yeah, you open the sleeve of those U-shaped crispy things, and mom would shred some uh, iceberg lettuce, um, take the lid off the sour cream container and put the spoon in it and put that on the table. Um, some chopped tomato and that ground beef mixture that had that sort of cuminy, you know, orange spice mix in it. Yeah, I like how you say cuminy because you're not 100% sure there's actually cumin in it. It, I, There's something that tastes like that. There's some sort of, um, it, it honestly probably comes from like the original picadillo in Mexico, which is, you know, shredded meat with a lot of spices and almonds and capers and raisins. And that's super delicious. And you can kind of see where they took that and executives just screwed it up. They just kept stripping away thing after thing. It's like, well, let's change the tomato for shitty tomato paste, or let's change, like, you know, spices that you toast and grind to this, you know, pre-packed shake, like, you know, the bottom of the barrel from some McCormick company of some sort, and then you have what you have. But that wasn't your thought process when you were, you know, living in Lemonster, Mass. You were, like, pour on some more shredded orange cheese. I, I mean, 
I thought they were great, and I wasn't taco obsessed then. I, I mean, that happened uh, way later in life for me. That like I came late to the I came late to the taco game. Yeah, I didn't even know there was a taco game, but I'd like to play it. <laughs> <laughs> At twelve, you were already in professional kitchens. Yes, um, I I told my dad I wanted a car, and he said, "Well, then you better get a job." So I I got a job as a dishwasher. And I stayed a dishwasher till I was 14, and I had been in kitchens ever since. Tell me about Vika. 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 Vika, wow. Um, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Vika stands for Vocational Industrial Clubs of America. Um, so where, when I, where I went to high school, you had a choice. You could go to normal high school, or they had this you know ancillary school attached to it where you could study auto mechanics or carpentry or food service, which is what I elected to study. And when you go to those schools, there's this organization called VICA where you can basically begin to compete um, within your your genre, your discipline. And uh, I did that during high school. Now, that, that competitive nature, is that what kind of drove you to the culinary industry? Or was it the actual I, technique no, I mean, or flavor? And No, that, I mean, I think it for all chefs... It, it starts with a desire to make people happy. Um, I'm not a particularly outgoing person, and I remember the first time I cooked something, which was um, my own homemade Russian dressing. I'm um, not really cooking, but I took some ketchup, and I took some mayonnaise, and I took some relish, and I tossed that together and dressed a salad and gave it to my mother, and it made her smile, and it just kind of, not that one moment, but it was kind of my way of... Um, communicating or, or transmitting yeah i mean did you find that same joy externing at cleo in boston um it that so th i think if all chefs start with that emotion then it starts to evolve and change so you brought up the word competition um when i ended up at cleo i mean you have to do an externship for culinary school right you got to go somewhere and i had decided i didn't want to go too far from home so i started looking at boston and I staged at a bunch of kitchens and, you know, Cleo, man, that was just the most beautiful food I had ever seen in my life. Um, imagine coming from a pretty meager culinary background and, and seeing, you know, these hungover, you know, 27 year old chefs and everyone's swearing. And while they're doing it, they're dusting the dirt off of black truffles or they're cutting lobes of foie gras or you're seeing like a red carrot for the first time. And and again, just people are kind of composing this stuff with intensity. And at the helm, you had Ken Oranger, which was... Um, He's one of the best chefs around. I mean, and I just really fell in love with it. And I kind of knew one way or another I wanted to be part of that sort of high-minded, intense um, sort of kitchen mentality. But initially you were relegated to pastry downstairs at the Elliott Hotel. That was, yeah. So, I no, I worked garmage, and then I had to take two shifts a week working pastry. And at that time, that meant you, you went down in the basement you made all the desserts. Um, you had to have them all done by 4 p.m., and then you had to hand them to the garmage cook. So it was actually a pretty sweet deal. It was actually because those services were so grueling and so intense. It's like two days a week. You were like, sweet. I can work from 8 a.m. till 4 p.m., and I can freaking go home and sleep or do whatever you do. I, I was 18 at the time, so I couldn't drink. Um, but yeah, that's how I started doing any pastry of any sort. It, it seems like it fit into your schedule. Was there true interest? Or I know afterwards you went back to Savory, worked at a couple places in there, Boston before returning to pastry. So that first experience at Cleo planted the seed for me. There was, there was, there was interest. Um, 
And see, in 1998, uh, Albert Adria's first book on dessert came out. And that blew me away. And it wasn't so much about it being sweet or being dessert. It was just about the logic of it. It was just about um, apply a flavor to this technique and you'll be set free. And I mean, I'm, that's not said anywhere in the book, but that's just what I took from it. So in the back of my head, I mean, I just went, went on my way cooking in savory kitchens and I kind of jumped on the first opportunity I could get to weasel my way into the pastry kitchen. And that was at uh, the Federalist in Boston. Um, so had a pastry chef. They either quit or got fired. I can't remember which, depending on who you ask. But anyways, I was a sous chef at that restaurant at the time, and I struck a deal with the chef. I said, hey, I'll make you a deal. I said, you, I'll take over pastry production. The only part of the, You can pay me the same money. You don't have to pay me more. Um, I just want my name on the menu which was like a very stupid, arrogant thing to want at 22, but it was the most important thing in the world for me at the time. And that was my first pastry chef job. I completely, you know, weaseled and negotiated my way into it. Um, it just so happened after that, I just kept getting better and better and better pastry chef jobs, and it started to feel good to me. I, I started to feel like I, was, I had my own voice with it or my own style with it. So after The Federalist, I went back to Clio, became their pastry chef, and then after that, Alinea, um, and then after that, WD-50. So that, that was basically my resume up until the age of 30. So what was the common thread? Was it pastry or was it molecular gastronomy? The common thread was creativity and intensity. Um, the molecular gastronomy term kind of popped up later. Um, I didn't start really hearing that until I started in at um, Alinea. And from my understanding, it... it it, it, it was just it was a term that got thrown away for lack of a better term. A molecular gastronomy started as a movement in science. You know, a group of scientists got together and kind of realized that they knew more about the surface of the moon than they know what happens to a steak when you put it in a hot pan. And that to me is what molecular gastronomy was, a better understanding of what happens when we cook food. To me, that has nothing to do with creativity. To me, creativity is about being artistic and getting being provocative and getting people to take a second look at something so that's always been what attracted me to those types of kitchens i mean ken grant wiley um extremely creative people so at that time did you know more about the moon or mexican food no i i knew nothing of either um well actually along the way i got interested in mexican cooking and i started reading as much and eating as much as i could and it, it was happening in tandem with basically a, a personal existential crisis. I had, for whatever reason, I had in my head that I had to have my own restaurant by the age of 30. I don't know where that magic number came from. I don't think it's meaningful in any way. But I had convinced myself that I had to get that done. Simultaneously, I was kind of feeling like, well, where is what I'm doing? Where is it all going? You know, um, for me, I, I, what I enjoy most is kind of waking up in the morning and trying to do what I don't know how to do. So the idea of what I was pedigreed for, which at one point was very counterculture. You remember, like, once upon a time, like, the idea of pouring liquid nitrogen over something or using hydrocolloids or being very manipulative with texture and temperature, it, it was divisive. Some people were into it, and then most people, it pissed them off, and they were like, well, fuck that, and it's not food and whatever. So, but that's what attracted me to it, that like when things are 
divisive like that, I, I, I generally go for them. Um, and I mean, if you think about music or art or architecture, I'm pretty consistent in that way. So, but then like you saw what happened. It's like, well, then at one point you couldn't watch Top Chef without watching some guy with a friggin' faux hawk pour liquid nitrogen over something. And it's like, I get it. It's, it's here now. Um, so I was really questioning what I could do that was one I loved doing and loved eating. And that was also highly provocative and creative. So I came up with this crazy idea to open a Mexican restaurant, whatever I thought that meant at the time, um, and doing it without any background, um, which now that seems insane. But at the, <laughs> at the, I, I, if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't do it over again. But then I, I, you couldn't talk me out of it. Yeah. Do you just not have hindsight? I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't even think about. I don't think about the past at all. Um, a little bit, I think about it, but it, it, the past is kind of daunting. The present is concerning, and the future is always the most exciting. Well, you know, I'm going to look into the past for you. You, you had a wife of Mexican heritage, or eventually your wife. Yes, Lauren is. Well, Lauren's American. She's born in L.A. Um, her her mother. She's half. She's half Mexican. Her mother is Mexican, and. Uh, Lauren grew up with really a really great version of Mexican cooking. You know, it's not you couldn't trace it back. It's like it's like Italian American cooking. Like you couldn't necessarily trace it back to a region of of Mexico. But growing up in Southern California and growing up with a Mexican mother, a, a great Mexican cooking was her birthright. Um, and she was a big portal for me of discovery of it. Um, the first real tortilla i have and i'll define real by a tortilla made out of freshly ground corn masa cooked and served immediately i i had that be, thanks to my mother-in-law and that was something for me that was just so simple and so texturally epiphanal it's kind of like when you talk to people and they're like well i've been eating baguettes my whole life but i never went to paris and then i went and then i realized i never had one that's what that tortilla was for me and I mean, there's so many other aspects of it. I'm just so taken. I'm so charmed by that cuisine, um, by the humility and simultaneous greatness of it, um, the technical complexity. Uh, I, I like that it's still I find it fascinating that it, it, I think this is changing and it's going to change more and more. But it's still largely a misunderstood cuisine by outsiders. And I'm comfortable saying that because I, now I look at it firsthand. I, I have that data and I, I have three restaurants in New York City and I, I understand a lot of the, the different perceptions. You know, I think the cool kids, like the, the ones in the know, like the 0.001% are understanding it more deeply. And they're kind of regarding Mezcal the same way they would regard wine from Friuli or whatever. But still, for the most part, I think it's largely misunderstood. Well, what did it feel like being a white guy walking into La Perilla for the first time? And did you think it was authentic? It. So the first part of the question, it's, it's intimidating. I, I'm still... I I try to preserve my my position as a um, respectful outsider at all times, as opposed to a white know-it-all trying to appropriate a cuisine. So I'm nervous at a restaurant like that the same way I'm nervous walking around um, in a market stall in, in Oaxaca. And whether it's authentic or not, I don't really like talking about that stuff, uh, to be honest with you. I think authenticity and tradition... You hear those words a lot with Mexican cooking, more so than you hear it with, with other cuisines. And for me, it's just about, like, like whether it's traditional or authentic, it, to me, it's like if there's a certain set of ingredients and a certain set of 
um, skill sets happening in the kitchen, I can tell you if it's Mexican or not, or at the very least Mexican-inspired. Um, but La Perilla, I think, was a pretty real deal. Do you remember what you had there the first time? I mean, it, it was super simple. It was, uh, we had... We had those tortillas, and the reason we had them is because we had some queso fundido with rajas and chorizo, and the chorizo is really good, and it it has that paprika edge of Spanish chorizo, but it has all those chilies and spices and, you know, that heavy presence of clove and allspice. That's just something that I think of when I think of Mexican cooking now, and we had that, and we had some chunks of pork shoulder that were simmered in salsa verde for a day and a half, and that was the meal, and it was great. You know... Even in the States, there's like regional, and I'm air quoting Mexican cooking. You know, you got San Fran, Mission Burritos. You have, sure. You know, um, Texas has its own El Paso. It has San Antonio, yes. Puffy Tacos, Chili con Carne. But when did you start regionalizing Mexican cuisine? When did I start? I mean, I started being aware of the regions almost immediately. I mean, Rick Bayless's cookbooks were highly informative for me. Um when you think about him and when he began delving into that cuisine in America, in the Midwest, um, it's, it's pretty ballsy. It's, it's very pioneering. And he's very careful to, he, I mean, he, he tries very hard to demystify things and make them feel friendly and approachable. But within that, he doesn't pull punches in terms of information. So, I mean, before I ever even went to Mexico, I was aware that there are regions and those regions are different. We're going to take a quick break. And sure. We're going to come back and talk, you know, about what pushed you to open up MPON, a little more about the Mexican import uh, of agriculture and workers that come to this country. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. Welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today having a Taco Tuesday with Alex Stupak um, of Empeon. And let, let's define that word. What does it mean and what does it mean to you? So, Empeon means, um, quite literally, it means to uh, push, shove, or jostle. It's a, it's a lesser known version of the word push. And typically, you hear the word empujar, which means to push a door open. This means to shove something or someone out of your way which is kind of a weird uh, name for a restaurant. I, I interpreted it as, uh, I, I said to myself, well, what's important to me in my career? And, and I said, well, to keep evolving, to keep changing, to, to push forward, to push yourself forward. And empeon was the most appropriate word that I could source to kind of encapture that. And I think it was a very beautiful sounding word, and I think it was a powerful sounding word. And to me, if it means to push and change and grow, or at least that's how I'm interpreting it, um, 
then it's a, a, the names of your restaurants are a constant reminder. It's literally grow or you're a joke because that's the name on the door. And number one, nixtamalization. How important was it to have a real, great, fresh tortilla in New York? Um, nixtamalization. So for those of you who don't know, it's, it's probably the original molecular gastronomy. So field corn or dent corn, which is not like the sweet corn that we all eat off the cob during Fourth of July, it's starchy and it's borderline indigestible um, in its natural state to humans. So um, uh, the ancient people, the Aztecs and the Mayans of, of Mexico figured out that this crop, the, the way they were surviving off of it was that they figured out that if they boil it with some ashes or some limestone, basically an alkali solution, that a few things were happening. One, that the corn, uh, it smelled better, it tasted better. And it gave it the ability to grind into a dough called masa. Um, it also has been documented that it makes the corn factually more nourishing. It, it creates uh, B vitamins that are available. It creates new amino acids. So the a tortilla with beans on it was a complete food. that you, It was a complete uh, diet that you could live off of. So for us, the importance of it is that, again, they're, they're in, in L.A. or in Texas or in Chicago and places where with very deep, rich, robust Mexican communities, you can't walk five feet without tripping over a great tortilla factory that's nixtamalizing their own corn. In New York City, that's still very, very rare. So um, I found we, with Al Pastor, we finally broke down and said we have to take this process into our own hands. Otherwise, it's not sustainable and we might as well close the restaurants. We can't go forward. And even though I don't think we are masters of nixtamalization or masa, it's still you got to get in there and you got to work on it and you got to try it. It's, it's better. It's better than buying something and reheating it. It's just better. And we're still, I mean, I feel like we've made a lot of progress in five years, but we're still nowhere near where I want us to be. Yeah. But we'll get there. I mean, is Masa Harina, which is something that people can buy at the store, a suitable alternative? Masa Harina is a concession. Um, at the end of the day, it's, um, it's going to be a lot more bland of a product than nixtamalizing your own corn, but it's also a lot more realistic. You cannot, you can nixtamalize corn at home easily. You cannot grind corn into masa easily. You need a pretty serious piece of equipment to do that. I, I own one now. I have this eight horsepower volcanic stone grinder, and I mean, we tried to figure out how to do it—a um, home friendly version with a you know with a meat grinder or a food processor—and it, I, I couldn't, I couldn't arrive at it. I could not arrive at it. So, if you were not in a place with tortillerias everywhere, uh, I would still say that maseca. Masa Harina, which is a concession, is still better than buying um, a processed tortilla in a package with a load of preservatives and reheating it. It's better than that. Yeah, I mean, at least there are things like uh, Macienda and Anson Mills right now that are making something better to work with. Yeah, I mean, Anson Mills has a has a decent product. Um, and again, like I said, it's it's not ideal, but I, I would rather people do that than um, buy all those things that have, like, cellulose gum and poly polysorbate 80. I mean, the problem with tortillas, a corn tortilla, is that, let's just talk about it, it's a gluten-free, fat-free, sugar-free product. So it's, very, it's a very unforgiving thing. It doesn't reheat well. Um, what starts off as supple and toothsome and chewy cools down, and then when reheated is um, mealy and brittle. I mean, it's the same idea. It's starch. It's it's the it's the molecular nature of starch. It's the same idea when you order egg foo young from your favorite takeout place and you eat half of it and you cool it down. The next day, 
that gravy never friggin' melts. It's because it's got starch in it. It's a it's a non thermo reversible hydrocolloid. So I can, I, you, can you say that one more time? It's a non reversible, a non non thermo reversible hydrocolloid, <laughs> which basically is a fancy friggin' way of saying once it gels, it ain't gonna melt again. Yeah, I mean, is that why you're exploring these ideas of neo traditional uh, tortillas? I mean, you're adding juices, you're adding different proteins, different fats. I mean, I just like it as a way of. It, it catches people's eye, and they go, oh, look at this new exciting thing. But then, like, open a book from Diana Kennedy, and you realize it's not new. It, it's not. And it goes back to the irony of so much of what is deemed as creative is simply because it wasn't of a person's perception. You know, but, like, I mean, in Oaxaca, like, when, when corn supply, like, they, they always have a, um, a secondary recipe for a tortilla with an adjunct. You know, whether that adjunct is um, wild greens or plantains or sweet potato something to stretch it out because basically the corn is harvested and as the year starts to go on they start to run out so they have to figure out a way to stretch it so again you're talking about something that's uh, out of necessity that um if i do it, it it's because of novelty or it's because of or people think it's, it's fun and exciting like i mean i could like wild uh, kelites lamb's quarters which are available all spring and summer long at the market here um, we saute them and we put them on a tortilla. And from this, from a cosmopolitan perspective, that's, you know, a concession for vegetarians or it, we're, it's, it's a taco for the ladies, well, however the hell you want to think about it. And the fact of the matter is, is like a taco de quilites with, you know, salsa verde on it and a little sprinkle of queso fresco is a common thing. And it's one of the homiest, you know, sort of delicious, you know, soul foods of Mexico. And I don't know if I'm doing a good thing or a bad thing. By doing it, I know that um, people judge the frame, not just the picture. So when I do things, I think sometimes it it's seeming that I'm trying to take it out of context or take it in a new direction. And I, I've kind of acquiesced to the idea I can't change that. Yeah. So it is what it is. I mean, you have a chicken wing, you have a, a cheeseburger, you have a pastrami taco. Sure. And there, I mean, there's logical stories behind all of them. Um, the cheeseburger taco is particularly provocative because. I knew that I, I didn't initially want to even serve that or even put it in the book. I, I got a lot of uh, nudging, one from my co-author, Jordana, and um, from my wife, Lauren, because we had that in Mexico. We, we, were, we were in Mexico for the purpose of studying al pastor tacos, and we went to this one place that's famous for them, El Rey del Taco, and they were serving cheeseburger tacos, and there was a line for them, and... The cook who was making them claimed he had invented them, and it was a huge point of pride, and it kind of raised this question. I, I like that I was seeing firsthand appropriation working in the other direction. It was it was traveling south rather than north, and to me it raised the question, like, well, is that a Mexican dish? And, I mean, at the end of the day, it's delicious, and there is no shortage of burger eaters in New York, but I, I like that, whether people know it or not, I like that story behind it. Yeah. Uh, you said before that show me a technique I can tell you whether or not it's Mexican. Do you feel the same way about ingredients too? Um, it's it's a slippery slope to say what's Mexican and what's not. Like at the end of the day, Mexican cooking, like all great cuisines, is born out of uh, indigenous fusion, um, sometimes violent indigenous fusion. So if you look at the Mexican cuisine we know at, we know today. Um, and raise the question, well, where do you draw the line? I could tell you whether an ingredient is Mexican or not, because at the end of the day, chilies come from Mexico. Uh, tomatoes, tomatillos, squashes, those are all New World foods, corn. 
So those are Mexican ingredients. Now, pork, on the other hand, came from a different part of the world and traveled over. So at one point, historically, a long, long, long time ago, there was no frying in Mexican cooking. There was no lard. So is pork a Mexican ingredient? My attitude, like, this is why I dislike talking about authenticity and tradition, because, again, where do you draw the line? And if, if it is this now, if it's this thing now, then who cares? And at the end of the day, what I try to do, I'm, I'm just simply inspired by it. Um, when you start delving into certain cuisines, people really start to question the person making it and their, and their motives. And some aren't that way. So there are certainly people cooking modern French cuisine who are not French people. And there are certainly people cooking every sort of iteration of Italian cooking that are not from Italy or, or not even descended from there. So, and with Mexican, um, from my personal experience, it's touchy. It's touchy. Um, people can, whether they say it to your face or they're thinking it, people can be offended that, well, you're doing this. Well, is al pastor truly Mexican? I think it is. Of course it is. And, and like, whether it was inspired from something else, I, it's absolutely a Mexican dish. The same way it, the cheeseburger taco, I mean, it's very different and much smaller and not known. But like that, to me, that's a Mexican dish. I'd also like to point out that I coveted your, your trompo. Is that what it's called? The rotisserie? Yes, yes the trompo. And, and that there is a home version if anyone wants to have their own al pastor. Not quite. I mean, they're a little pricey. I found one. Like, you can go online and find a, a little electric one that's good for cooking about 12 pounds of meat. And I think they're like 400 bucks. So it's not cheap. It's not like buying a toaster oven. Um, but yeah, you could get it done at home. Not, yeah. qu- not quite to the same effect as, you know, these big 200-pound monsters that we make out of pork at the at the bar. But... You can do it. Cochinita Pibil. Sure. Uh, what's wonderful in this book is that you not only explain what it is, but say, oh, and you can do it in your backyard, too. You can. Um, and again, back, will it ever be as good as, you know, there's something about those pigs from the Yucatan. I don't know what it is. Um, but I think we made a pretty damn good version. I mean, we got a pig and you dig a pit and you line it with bricks and you build a fire and you let it burn for like eight hours and you get the bricks so hot that you're scared and then you... You nestle this pork down that's rubbed with achiote, and you kind of snuff it out by putting a lid on it and burying it. So it kind of smokes and steams all at the same time. It's good, man. It's really good. Yeah. And I'm not going to use the word authentic again, but that feels real. That feels like you're, you're doing something that has been passed through generations. Whether it's authentic or not, who, it's good. Yeah. It's good. And, and like I don't think if, if you're passionate about it or it interested, I, I don't think you should stop doing things because they're inauthentic i mean like like think about think like think about an iconic restaurant for me like think about el bully when they opened and then think about when ferran first take took over and they were cooking mediterranean cooking and spanish cooking and then look where they ended up what what's spanish about a tempura of rose petals you know what what's what's there's nothing spanish about but i would still argue that spanish food um it's a spanish kitchen speaking spanish and thinking in a spanish way whatever that means um so I find that fascinating, and I think when we get too caught up in tradition, um, we, we limit ourselves. And, and again, no matter what new thing we do, tradition will always exist. There is traditional French cooking. like You can go to Lyon and still get the dishes of Lyon, and then there's hypermodern French cooking. And that hypermodern French cooking had no effect. It, it, had, it had zero effect, and I, I just... I preserve that stance. I, like, I'm not trying to change anything. I, I just want to be inspired by what's already there. Then there's JGV in a taco. Yes. So that was um, JGV in a taco. Um, 
and whether that's a successful taco or not, I thought it was pretty good. Um, Pete Wells said he liked it. He said he would have liked it better if it wasn't on the tortilla. But just the, <laughs> just the fact that I got him to take a look at it, that was kind of the point of that taco. And it's really about um, what Mexican cuisine is worth. And I think that's something a, a lot of restaurateurs, whether they're cooking Mexican cuisine or Indian cuisine or Thai cuisine, there's, certain, there's a certain subset of cuisines that um, is kept in sort of this economic ghetto based on American socioeconomic perception of that cuisine. So I said, well... What's this dish worth? This three Michelin star dish. We got the permission from the chef to make it, and we we made it to the letter, and we just placed it squarely on a tortilla to see if we charged uh, even half of that midtown price. Would people be okay with it? And again, it's it was divisive. It's yes and no. One of my favorite things too is your explanation that sauce ravigo is just really tartare. Sure, and I, I, I well, I'm from New England, so I'm biased. Um, and there, there's a couple different salsa ravigotes. One's like a broken, and it's in an oil. And another one I've found is emulsified, like in a mayonnaise. I could, we, we actually put both of them on a tortilla in the book because I couldn't figure out which one was friggin' traditional or not. Yeah. And lastly, shishitos, which is really an interesting ingredient because it, it comes from so many different places. Sure. It comes from, you know, Spanish cuisine and sometimes even Japanese cuisine. But you, you do like a rajas con crema style with shishitos, which are... Found in the green markets of New York. Yeah, I mean, we Raja tacos are delicious. We wanted to do something to make it our own. And at the end of the day, a chili is a chili to me. So even though chilies now grow and proliferate everywhere in the world, at the end of the day, they come from the New World. They come from Mexico, Central and South America. If this isn't enough thought about tacos, you have to get the book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's so appropriately named Tacos, Recipes and Provocations. Yeah, I mean, it comes from a place of tacos are the one Mexican food stuff that we all have an opinion on for better or worse. So it's the, it's the way to get everyone to pay attention. And keep on pushing, and everyone should stop in and on and see how much Alex pushes forwards with what, again, air quotes, is Mexican cuisine. Thank, Thank you. you so much. We're, we're for just going to keep trying our best. Excellent. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Thanks to Mick Nurse, Cookies the Band, Jack in the studio as always. And next up, a little clip from Inside School Food. Cheers. free and the the higher end poultry products like we grow it's easy for us to sell whole birds it's easy for us to sell chicken breast but when we're parting the birds out to to sell chicken breast we often end up with dark meat as a byproduct and so what ends up happening with that dark meat is we usually end up just selling that as a commodity product into the marketplace and we're not really able to get a premium price for it, even though it's a, it's a, it's a premium quality product. And so what it, the school districts are, we're able to sell that product into the school district and supply them with a premium quality product because of how we raise those birds. And then we're able to sell that into the school district that allows them to serve a meal at a very price conscious because they have very, very tight budgets they mm -hmm. have to work with. 
and then we know that those kids are able to eat a quality meal the schools are able to meet their budgets and then we also end up with some marketing out of that for more on this innovative program check out episode five of inside school food on heritageradionetwork.org Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.